don't know if you've ever had the situation where you walk into a room and everyone goes quiet and you realise they've gone quiet because they've been talking about you? <laughs> kind of had that experience? Well, um, just think about my job for a minute. Now, I'm going to talk about God. And God's here in this room. And some people would say, today, Good Friday, is the holiest day of the year. I think we should pray, don't you? Pray for God's help as we hear what God has to say to us. Um, please join with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that you'll help us to understand it now. I pray that it will make a real difference uh, in our lives. Um, please help me to speak the truth and to keep it interesting so people stay with it. And uh, I ask that as we look closely at this account of the death of Jesus, that we'll see things we've never seen before, uh, not just for our own curiosity's sake, but so that we learn to trust Jesus more deeply and worship him with our lives. Amen. There was a few uh, Good Fridays back, I can't remember which year, in the early 2000s, I was uh, joining a bunch of people, including my family and some others in our backyard. We were having a Good Friday lunch when I received a phone call that had come through from the hospital. A good friend of mine had died. Uh, he was 28 years of age. I had married uh, this man to his wife only 18 months before. I went to the hospital and we spent time with the family and then a short time later we had a funeral and I remember saying to everyone who was gathered, it was a large funeral, will you ever call this day Good Friday again? It was a very poignant time. Uh, they'd lost a child, they'd lost a husband, they'd lost a friend, lost a colleague. Is it possible to think of the day of someone's death as a good day. And friends, Christians have been doing this for 2,000 years. Why is it that we call this day Good Friday? Keep that in mind and we're going to have a look at this story. And it's a story about death and the reality of death is it's always painful. Uh, death is something that comes into our world and confronts us with hurt, with sorrow, with suffering, with pain... It brings an end to something that is good. And we need to acknowledge that death is wrong. God didn't create this world to be a place of death. He created it to be a place of life. We thought that we knew better than God and so death comes into our world and it has been since the very earliest stage. And there's something that's kind of natural about death. We anticipate it happening but yet when it happens it's so wrong. It leaves us empty, it leaves us hurting, it might leave us angry, it might leave us weak. And we're going to be hearing today about the death of Jesus Christ. A death which in so many ways is wrong and you'll see it in this passage. A death which in so many ways was unexpected. I mean here's a man who is probably 33 years of age. For me that's 27 years ago, for some of you it's longer for some of you, you're looking forward to that time, but none of us would see that as old. It's not the time that we anticipate dying. And yet for Jesus, this young man, in many ways in the prime of his life, probably very fit, travelling around, walking, talking, spending time with people, making a big impact in the lives of many people, 
he's cut down in his prime. And there were great expectations for Jesus. The expectations were building. His followers were hearing about the one who had come as the king. He was the promised Messiah. They'd been looking forward to a king because they'd been oppressed for so long. Go back, it was the Assyrians. After that, it was the Babylonians. And then it was the Medes and the Persians. And then it was the Greeks. And now it's the Romans. I mean, the history of the people was that they needed a king to come and save them. And it seemed like Jesus might be this one. And yet we read of his death. But we've also been looking through this gospel of Matthew. And we come to this day not unprepared. The death of Jesus has actually come according to plan. We see that in a number of ways. You see it in the evil intentions of people who are hostile to Jesus. From very early in Matthew's gospel, there are people conspiring together, aligning themselves, people who are often enemies, but they see a common enemy in Jesus and they say, we've got to kill him. We've got to find a way to get rid of him. He's threatening our authority. He's threatening our way of life. He's undermining our control of things and we cannot have this take place. And so they conspire to kill Jesus. And it's a plan that we see just kind of getting more and more detailed as we go along. But it's not simply the plan of evil people. Jesus, when he's identified as the Messiah by Peter, his follower, in the middle of the gospel, goes on immediately to say that the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem where he'll be betrayed, rejected, mocked, killed and on the third day rise again. And there's a little word in the original that Jesus uses each time he talks about this. It's the word day, D-E-I in English. It means must. These things must take place. I must die. And Jesus has been preparing people for his death right through as he teaches about the kingdom so he's preparing people with the fact that the king has come to die. It doesn't make sense to them, but it's not unprepared. And what we'll see also, if we look back into the Old Testament, through Genesis, right through to the book of Malachi, is that the promise of the coming king is in fact tied up with the death of a suffering servant. But let's have a look at this passage now and, and what we see going on here. Um, there are a number of things that stand out to us. So in verses 1 and 2, early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. And so they bound him and they led him away and they handed him over to Pilate, the governor. Now, as Fiona said, back in chapter 26, Jesus has been accused and in their minds found guilty of blasphemy. Blasphemy under Jewish law carried the punishment of death. But there's a barrier, a problem, because the chief priests and the elders had no authority to sentence someone to death. So while in their mind it was a capital offence, they didn't have the authority under the Romans to be able to execute him for blasphemy. So the plan takes a turn. And while blasphemy is not a capital offence for the Romans, treason is to claim to be a king and usurp the true king, that's a punishable offence by death. 
by crucifixion. And so this is their plan. We'll hand him over to the governor and we won't make a big deal about blasphemy anymore, but let's point out the fact that he is the one who claims to be the king. And you see the irony going on through this, and we'll get to that in a minute. But there is no doubt, as you look at this account of the death of Jesus, that you're dealing not with a criminal, but one who is innocent. We're told again and again. Um, you see it with Judas. After he sees what's happened with Jesus being handed over, he says, I've sinned, for I have betrayed innocent blood. And so he takes the money and he throws it into the temple and the chief priests in their kind of hypocritical, uh, ironic behaviour say, no, this is blood money, we can have nothing to do with this, even though they're still conspiring to kill him. Blood money, why? Because he is innocent. And then they buy this field of blood. And then a little bit later we, we see Pilate's wife saying, don't have anything to do with that innocent man Pilate listens to her less than he listens to the crowd his position is under threat but he's still wanting to wash his hands and be innocent of this man's blood and then the people say his blood is on us and on our children there's innocent blood being shed here that tells us a couple of things that is it tells us that Jesus doesn't deserve what he's going through. But it tells us something also a little bit deeper. When are these events happening? They're happening at the Passover. During the Passover, they remembered the shedding of innocent blood. The lamb that was shed, whose blood was shed and painted on the doorpost so that the angel of death would pass over every household gathers with this the ideas of sacrifice the lamb who is spotless without blemish giving his life as a sacrifice for the sinners here is the innocent one shedding his blood as a sacrifice for sinners and look at the charges well we read that again and again he is labeled as the king uh, he is the king when they strip him and put a scarlet robe on him they twist together a crown of thorns they set it on his head they give him a staff put it in his right hand and they kneel in front of him and they mock him hail king of the Jews the irony that we see there and then later as they nail him to the cross uh, above his head they put this sign a written charge this is Jesus the king of the Jews. John's gospel tells us that it was written in Aramaic, in Latin and in Greek. There was to be no doubt that this man was being executed for treason. In fact, John's gospel also tells us that it shouldn't say the sign, this is the king of the Jews, but he claims to be the king of the Jews. I mean, they're self-incriminating in that statement. Here we see one who is being mocked, he's being tried, uh, he's being crucified as the king. Jesus, 
as he dies on this cross, is dying as the king. And we know from what he has already been saying that this is his choice. From what we've seen of Jesus, it's not the soldiers that force him to be executed. It's not the nails through his hands or through his feet that keep him on the cross. It's his commitment to being the innocent dying in the place of the guilty. And we see that in another point of irony. that They say to Jesus in verse 40, you are the one who said you are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days? Well, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the son of God. But he won't. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they say, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and then we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants it for him. He said, for I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels that were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. You see the irony there? He saved others, but he cannot save himself. His plan is to save others by not saving himself. The one who is keeping Jesus on the cross is Jesus. It's according to plan. He is the innocent sacrifice. And of course, this, this horrible scene that's gone on where the crowd are being whipped up into a frenzy and, and they're opposing Jesus at every front and, and Pilate is kind of torn, do I, don't I? And, and there's another person on the scene and his name is Jesus as well. Jesus Barabbas. Oh, he was an insurrectionist. He was a murderer. He's a terrorist. He deserved to die. But Jesus, Messiah, the innocent one. And yet he gives his life for the sake of people just like Barabbas. The innocent in the place of the guilty. Can you start to get a sense of why it is that, that Christian people call this day Good Friday? For the Bible tells us that we are guilty, that, that we will give an account before God for the things that we've done and things we've failed to do, and yet Jesus will stand in our place, he will hang in our place, he will die in our place, the innocent being sacrificed for the sake of the guilty. And then we come down in the account to these chilling words, verse 45, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think it's worth pausing and, and thinking about the nature of those words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How could you have such a rift in the nature of God himself? Of course, there's cosmic 
catastrophic events going on. There's darkness in, in the middle of the afternoon. We'll read later uh, about an earthquake and tombs breaking open and people being raised to life and so on. This is a dramatic event that's taking place, but there's nothing more dramatic than Jesus himself taking the judgment of God for sinful people. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And of course, the implied reason is because Jesus has willingly taken on himself our sin. And so he pays the price for our sin, and that is a good day. And it's at the very moment of Jesus' death. Notice verse 50, when he cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks split and the tombs broke open. At that moment, now if you don't know much about the temple, the, the temple is basically a, a massive structure that has a small cubical kind of structure in the middle of it. And there's a curtain that separates the inside of that central section from the outside. And only the high priest could go into that section where he was symbolically offering uh, sacrifice for the sins of the people. And the temple symbolized so many things. But one of the big things it symbolized was keep out of the presence of God. Not anyone could go in there. No one could look in and live. And now what happens with the death of Jesus? The curtain is torn in two from top to bottom. Not from bottom to top. It's not that a bunch of soldiers grab one side and another bunch grab the other side and they rip it, which of course would tear it from the bottom to the top. But this is a heavenly action symbolizing the opening of access to God. Through the death of Jesus, people like you and I can enter into the presence of God. And we get a taste of that with these tombs being opened and so on. But of course, on Easter Sunday, you, you discover what that is all about. With the crucified one then resurrected. Friends, as we look at this account of the death of Jesus, we can see what is so good about Good Friday. I want to give you a, a couple of pictures that I might help us to see what's going on. Um, some of you have heard of a, a pilot called Sully. Some of you have seen the, the movie or read the book Miracle on the Hudson. An extraordinary account really of uh, a pilot by the name of Sully who uh, was flying in this, um, this jet um, uh, and um, they hit a, a flock of geese. It's an Airbus 320. Um, hits a flock of geese and they realise that there is no airport where they can safely land. And so he makes the decision to land the plane on the Hudson River. There are 155 people on that plane. Everyone survives. It's an extraordinary account. But if all you knew was this, pilot flying plane crashes into the Hudson River. You think, what a goose. Pun intended. You wouldn't think much of it, would you? Until you realise 
that in doing that, he saves 155 lives. Put yourself in the position of the crowd. You're looking at this one being mocked and taunted, the sign above his head, this is the king of the Jews, dying, breathes his last. Looks like a disaster. You don't know much about him, but he's probably getting what he deserved. No. No, he's dying to save many. A number of years before that, there was another plane that crashed into the Potomac River back in 1982, Washington, D.C. And sadly, things didn't go so well. Um, of the 79 people on the plane, only five survived. But every one of those five people told the same story. A man swam to me and he gave me something to hang on to and then I was rescued. A man came over to me and he, he helped me and he, he gave me a, a life boy or whatever it might have been until they could rescue me. Five people, they all told the, told the same story and they never found the man who had given that rescue to those people. He'd given his life so that they could be saved. Friends, what's so good about Good Friday? Well, there have been a lot of martyrs over the years. And sadly, there continue to be. But Jesus' death is a death where the innocent king gives his life for the salvation of sinners. Do you know that reality? Are you able to look at this day and know it in, in your heart of hearts to be a really good Friday? Because if you don't, I encourage you to come back on Sunday. Keep coming along. Grab hold of a Bible. If you don't have one, we've got some on the desk and you're welcome to take them. Just find out this, this great news. There's a song that I enjoy listening to where it speaks of this. And it says it's not good news. It's the best news ever. Don't miss out on it.